Psalm 40. The fool says in his heart, there is no God. They are corrupt. Their deeds are vile. There is no one who does good. The Lord looks down from heaven on all mankind to see if there are any who understand, any who seek God. All have turned away. All have become corrupt. There is no one who does good, not even one. Do all these evildoers know nothing? They devour my people as though eating bread. They never call on the Lord, but there they are, overwhelmed with dread. For God is present in the company of the righteous. You evildoers frustrate the plans of the poor, but the Lord is their refuge. Oh, that salvation for Israel would come out of Zion. When the Lord restores his people, let Jacob rejoice and Israel be glad. This is the word of the Lord. Thank you so much, Mark. Great. It's lovely to be here with you. The fool says in his heart, there is no God. So I wonder whether any of you can remember the first moment where you considered the possibility that there may have maybe a God. Or, if you had a sheltered Christian experience like me, the first time that you realized that there were people who didn't believe in God. I think gathered here in this the relative comfort of a church service, it can feel very easy to say, God willing, Jesus is Lord, amazing grace. But if you go to the, I don't know, the clock tower in the center of Leicester and listen as there's someone standing there desperately trying to shout the gospel in a public space, soon realize that not everyone responds as though these are normal words. In fact, um, for the first time in 2022 in this country, 14, uh, we are in a minority. People who believe in God, and I'm defining that as broadly as we possibly can, 49% of people believe in God where in 1980 it was 72%. So if we're not too picky about which God we're talking about, I suspect that actually most people in Leicester do believe in a God of some sort. But it doesn't feel difficult for us not to believe in God. Bear with me. It doesn't feel like our day-to-day existence is going to be massively impacted if we wake up one day and decide that we don't believe in God. We don't rely on the idea of there being a divine figure to just get us through. For most of us, we wouldn't be ostracized if we came to the conclusion that there is no God, thank you very much. We live in what a philosopher called Charles Taylor calls the imminent frame. Now, Charles Taylor wrote a big, thick book called The Secular Age, and I'm going to confess, I have not read it. If Rob Miles was here, I reckon he's read it. Um, But I know quite a few people who who have, 
And here's what I think it means. That the imminent frame is a world where everything that exists, everything that happens can be understood in relation to everything else that's going on. We don't need to refer to anything that's beyond what we can see and feel and touch and hear. And so, as we live in that world, it becomes harder and harder for us to imagine the possibility that there is some spiritual dimension to our existence, that there are supernatural forces that might be at work in our lives. Over the last couple of centuries, there have been all of these amazing developments in healthcare and science and democracy and welfare, but they've all come with this sense that the more we progress, the less need we have for God. But there was a time, not so long ago, that it was very, very difficult to not believe in God. That everything in your life was wrapped up in this idea of there being something transcendent, that there was something beyond all we could touch and see and feel and measure. From the communities that we lived in to the homes that, that kept us sheltered from storms which may or may not happen, to seasons and the harvest and the food we used to feed our families, everything was infused with, if not a Christian understanding of God, some idea that there was things going on that were far beyond our control. So the idea of an atheist just wouldn't have computed. So, as we read this verse, the fool says in his heart there is no God. Three things I want you to notice. Firstly, the fool is not a stupid person. Not foolish as we might understand the word foolish. When we read about foolishness in the Old Testament, it's less about whether we really understand things, and it's more about our moral behavior and our character and the way we live our lives. Less about how, what we believe and more about how we believe. Okay, secondly, when we read that the fool says, there is no God, I don't think that this psalm is aimed at atheists. Not as we understand them anyway. This isn't a rebuke to Dawkins, because I don't think that Richard Dawkins would have existed in the world in which this was written. This is about someone who behaves as though God isn't present. In fact, and this is the third thing I want us to notice, that the writer of the psalm says that they say in their heart that there is no God. The heart which for a Hebrew writer, wasn't just an organ pumping blood around our body, but it was the place where all of our thoughts, all of our emotions, all of our choices, everything that we are originates from our heart. It's almost like saying our whole being. Proverbs 4.23 says, Guard your heart because from it flows your whole life. So with that in mind, God looks at humanity to see if there's anyone who's up to snuff and concludes that we are all mired in this foolishness, that we're all trapped in this web of wrongdoing, and there's not one person who is good, not even one. Now, some people write about this, and they try and tone it down a little bit. 
They think the writer was deliberately exaggerating. And of course, they assume that the person who's writing this thinks they're innocent. Surely God's chosen people aren't included in this condemnation. But if you flick to Romans 3, you'll see that Paul quotes a huge chunk from this psalm, including a bit that's not even in our Bibles. I'll explain that to you afterwards if you want. As he tries to underline this point, all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. We fail to live up to the standard of God. We're all broken and in need of rescuing. It's easy for us to assume that all this foolishness in the world is out there somewhere. And we're standing high on a hill of superiority with an innocent vantage point. Or perhaps even we are the victims in this situation. But what's a little bit scarier is the idea that this isn't about us over here and those foolish atheists over there. But that the evil that we see out there in the world exists in our own hearts, in our own beings. And that we are every bit as capable of mistreating other people or as living as though there is no God. Now, I know, and I'm sure you've all heard, this perspective being used to beat people up, to tell them that they are miserable worms, that they are worth nothing. It feels to me like negging people into loving Jesus. And my starting point is always that we are created and known and loved by a generous self giving God. I want us to all understand that we are created to bear the likeness and image of our Creator. There is so much joy and goodness and love out there in the world, and God created it, and we all get to be a part of it. God is not a cosmic killjoy, but rejoices with us as we enjoy all that His creation has to offer. But it seems pretty self-evident that there are things which are not as they should be. Leaders who exploit their positions. Wars being fought. Humans treated as though they are objects to be possessed and bought and sold. The natural world being destroyed for financial gain. Children being stabbed in a park in France. People being imprisoned or sentenced to death for their sexual orientation. Our psalm says that evildoers devour my people as though eating bread. You might say they chew them up and spit them out. They frustrate the plans of the poor. It's so easy to exploit the poor if we think that those who have less are worth less. And I think what happens here is that when we start denying God with our lives, we start behaving as though we have no need of God. We treat God as less than God. And then we deny the value that we have as a person who is created by God, who is God's creation and delight. We start placing our value in 
not in who we were created to be. And we start trying to find value in our achievements or value in our reputation or our power or simply our ability to get what we want. And as we relentlessly pursue those achievements, we find ourselves using and abusing other people, treating them as less than the people that they were created to be, treating them as less than image bearers of the Creator God. The poor and vulnerable are among those who get the brunt of this. And that's why over and over again, all the way through Scripture, God shows concern for those who are poor, those who are exploited, to those who are left out. Even when they have nowhere they can turn, God is their refuge. And of course, it's tempting for us to think all of this is out there somewhere. We may not be committing genocide. If you are considering committing genocide, um, maybe we should have a conversation. But we are selfish in our own lives? Am I able to stand by while other people are mistreated? I know too often I am, especially when it's uncomfortable or inconvenient for me to stand in the way. Are we caught up in, uh, caught up in a worldwide system of buying and selling things which privileges the few and tramples on the poor? Sadly, it seems almost impossible for us to escape. So whatever it is that we profess that we believe in church, we end up living lives that, as though there is no God. We fail to call to God. We fail to love our neighbors. When we honestly examine ourselves, I think most of us, find selfishness or faulty motivation in our own hearts, in our own beings. But don't worry, I'm not going to leave it there. Because there is hope. God is present in the company of the righteous. The psalm looks forward to a time when salvation will come. When the people will be restored. I think maybe the salvation that the writer is hoping for would have been un understood in terms of their national identity. That their nation would be restored in the face of evildoers. That someone would rise up and make Israel great again. But I think God had other plans. Because we see in Jesus a very different sort of salvation. A restoration which reunites us with God which allows us to see ourselves and to see one another as we were created to be. You know, we might not always get it right. But because of Jesus, we are counted among the company of the righteous. Because of Jesus, our failings are forgiven. Our sinful nature is washed away. Because of Jesus, the restoration goes far beyond Israel and touches all of humankind. Because of Jesus, God sees us as we were created to be. And we have received grace upon grace from a generous, self-giving God.
In the book of James, it says, faith, if it is not accompanied by action, is dead. Friends, our belief in God means nothing if we don't allow it to move from our heads into our hearts and from our hearts into our whole being. But when we do, it transforms us. It transforms everything about how we live and how we love those around us. So I pray that this week you may go into the week seeking God. Knowing that you can escape the imminent frame. That we will not be fools, but we will discover that we are loved beyond measure by a God who gave himself. So we may know just how deep and wide that love can flow. Of a love which extends to every person who has or will ever live. And that as we hold on to this knowledge in the depth of our beings, we will be transformed from glory to glory. Amen.